0: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only Master Cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
1: Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and Three, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech.
0: We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them. And driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible.
1: We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your
2: salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and
1: alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea.
2: We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business.
1: And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or for media consumption at all. It's really
2: it's it's how the robots decided that they were going to wait human interaction.
1: Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and Three, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. to eat your words on Heritage Radio Network and I'm your host Kathy Irway. So today we are talking about meat. That is the matter of the meat of the matter of today's show. And, uh, but we're also talking about an incredibly, we're talking with an incredibly inspiring woman in food um, who also happens to be a really, really good writer. She is the founder of the Portland Meat Collective. She has been teaching um, people how to butcher whole animals. Um, since 2014, and she is now the author of a wonderful memoir called Killing It, an Education. So I'm very pleased to have on the line from Portland, (laughs) Camas. sorry, I messed it up, (laughs) Camas Davis. Hi. Sorry. Hi. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, uh, beforehand, I was like, I just have one question. How do I pronounce your name? And she's like, Camas. and I'm like, completely forgot. Common mistake. Um, yeah, I love your stories about how you got your name in the book, which are various mm-hmm. and funny, but um, yes. it has to do with the flower also. So, yeah, yes. That, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is such an exciting book. Um, congratulations to you. Um, Thank you. And okay, so just to fill everyone in on uh, the backstory, but you know, just 10 years ago, or not even, you were a food reporter for the Portland mm-hmm. Monthly, for and you were writing, you know, as a food reporter for about ten years, and you lost your job, and then you decided to go to Southern France to take up learning um, the skills of animal butchery, and mm-hmm. this book explores that. And you have since gone on to found um, the Portland Meat Collective, and um, and go to talk about the the you know the heritage of whole animal butch- butchery to many people but um what okay so why butchery like you lost your job at a food <laughs> magazine and then you're like yep i'm going to go <laughs> learn how to kill pigs <laughs> right yeah uh
2: well i mean in many ways writing the book was my way of figuring out that the answer to that question um because i don't know that when i decided to go to france and study butchery i I had a bullet point list of, of why, necessarily. Um, so you weren't and I think,
1: planning to write a book about this when you went to France? Oh, no. 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 In fact, I, when I went to France, I had said to
2: myself and to others, I'm not writing about this. Um, mm. I, very, I very much wanted, having been a, a food writer and an, and a magazine editor for so long, um, I really wanted to have an experience in which I did not have to take notes um, mm. and just see what that was like. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, I you know, I mean, I think I was moving towards toward this decision for much of my life in many ways. Um, you know, from a just personal perspective, I had grown up hunting and fishing with my, my father and my grandfather. Um, but I had also... And so I'd seen the processes, you know, by which wild animals get to your table. Um, mm-hmm. But I also had a, mo- a mother who... Um, didn't she ate meat, but she didn't want to touch raw right. meat, um, right. <laughs> and and was a bit squeamish, as many
1: people are about uh-huh. um, about those processes. Very and two two very different poles there. Then. Yeah. yeah, and
2: so I, I sometimes, I mean, in the course of writing this book, I've sort of thought, oh, I wonder if those two poles are what shaped my curiosity about this, and and what made me not only curious but sort of. Um, Torn between which where to be on the spectrum of eating meat and not eating meat and I'd also you know been a vegetarian in my teenage years and in my college years and so that and so there was you know some question of morality and, and ethics that had always mm-hmm. been in the background and then as a food writer and as a journalist um, I started I noticed that when I asked chefs Um, or when I was writing about a cut of meat when I was a restaurant reviewer, writing about a cut of meat and thought, oh, this is good. Why is this so good? And would sort of start to dig a little bit deeper and ask the chef, you know, why is it so good? Where does it come from on Mm. the animal? Uh, I just didn't get many satisfying answers. Um, Mm. And often, you know, often it was, well, it has a lot of fat in it or, Mm. You know, the marbling, yeah, yeah, or I think it's from this part of the animal. But most of the chefs at the time when I was writing about food were not doing butchery, and so they were buying box cuts of meat and didn't really know much about where it came from necessarily. Um, and that was kind of shocking to me. And then the the more I drilled down, the less answers I would get. I would, you know, call the distributor and they didn't know much. And then by that, you know, (laughs) by that point, the meat was from four states over and a, a huge you know, processing facility that wasn't going to answer my
1: calls. Bamsaws, so, yeah. Huh.
2: Yeah. So I just, from a journalistic perspective, was kind of like, what, where, is, is that all there is? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. is all there is eating this cut of meat and, and not really knowing much about it? Um, and so I think all those things kind of pushed me. And then also working in magazines in New York, specifically at Sever Magazine, um, I had worked on a, a couple of stories um one about a set of two brothers uh, in New Jersey, the Maresca brothers, um, who um, did a whole, ran a whole animal old school, you know, old, old school uh, whole animal butchery shop. And that was the first time I'd really thought, like, wait, there are butcher shops that aren't whole animals? <laughs> what, what does that mean? Um, and then also just sort of was enamored with all these kind of old older school kind of, um, you know, butcher shops in New York and which I didn't grow up with um, necessarily here in Oregon. Um, and so I kind of had this sort of cultural obsession in a way with the culture of these old, old shops and also became aware in, in working on these stories that those guys were going to retire and, and, Mm. That maybe there was no one to step in in their place Mm -hmm. so that that gave me pause and and made me ask more questions as well
1: yeah so quite a transformation though um this book is about your whole many transformations uh from a writer to a teacher um and so forth but uh Mm -hmm. you also were of of feminist vegetarian in college. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. fashioned yourself after books like The Sexual Politics of Meat
0: mm-hmm. and um,
1: Didn't Eat Meat. So uh, what do you think is the transformation in the last, I don't know, decade or so, or in the time that you've been teaching people about um, butchery? Do you, have you seen a, a sort of change in general attitudes around meat?
2: uh in my own or other people's
1: or from yeah just from common just popular awareness yeah that's your I, definitely mission, right? definitely i mean i think you
2: know when i set out to go to france and learn learn those basic processes um and to also learn you know is there any way to raise meat outside of the factory farm model um there in Portland and I think in other lar- you know major cities in America especially in New York where I had just moved from there was this sort of um there's kind of a meat renaissance going mm-hmm. on where people were kind of waxing poetic about bacon and trying to you know season <laughs> their bacon with pine needles and coffee and um you know I think a couple of people around the time I moved to Portland in 2007 a couple of chefs had started doing whole animal butchery sure. demos
1: yeah,
2: um, I remember as a restaurant reviewer producing stories, uh, photo shoots for the magazine here in, in Portland, in which we had Naomi Pomeroy and Gabriel Rucker, you know, posing with pig heads, and so there was this kind of like fetishization of meat mm-hmm. going on, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really know why or where that was coming from, and didn't honestly think very hard about it. I think I sort of got on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now, I mean, yes, that yes, that still exists. Um, I try to distance myself from that as much as possible, but I think now there's much more of a, among the chefs that I work with and that I know um, a much more concerted effort to actually not fetishize and to really dedicate themselves to figuring out how do you use the whole animal? How do you source animals from non-industrial sources? How do you make money doing that? And I think those chefs have over time, influenced, um, consumers, you Mm -hmm. know, at least in, at least in larger cities. I don't know that that's happening everywhere. Um, that's interesting. But you even see, I mean, I even see in grocery store chains that aren't really selling the greatest, most appealing meat in the world. These, the language of, you know, farm to table and whole animal butchery and, um, but you know, old school butchers is still utilized in a way that's interesting, even if it's false.
1: Right, yeah, because yeah. I mean, it's interesting you bring up. There's like a whole like sort of fetishization of meat camp, which is different mm-hmm. from what you're doing, which is, um, you know, showing showing the nasty <laughs> everything, you know, yeah. The, yeah. The, the butchering, but also hopefully in inspiring people to respect more of the animal. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean,
2: it's definitely my. I've come to realize that, or I've come to believe that by not being a part of those processes and not seeing signs of them or just not witnessing them, we continue to kind of support a system of meat production that isn't necessarily great for us or for the animals or for our planet. And that the more sort of, it's not intuitive, but I feel like the more we see and the more we dig into those processes, um, the more we think, and then we kind of change our tune and we change, Mm how we, you know, we do have respect and reverence for that process. Um, we do understand how meat is raised outside of the industrial model, and we start to, you know, eat less of it, right. buy it from different sources, think about it differently. So that's, you know, in the end, that's ended up being my, my goal through all of this. I wouldn't say I started out when I went to France so articulate about any of
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um Yeah, at the same time, you've also been, and you and the Portland Meat Collective, that is, uh, have been the target of animal welfare activists um, Mm -hmm. throughout the years. Uh, Tell me a little bit about some of those uh, experiences. I understand there was vandalism, there was stealing. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, there's one, you know, over the years, it's mostly been, you know emails and phone calls okay. and funny interactions and online and that sort of thing which is sort of par for the course but yes there is an incident that's in the book that um i have come to call bunny gate um sunny gate which mm-hmm. involved uh oh, one bunny. we, we still don't know yeah bunny gate yeah um we still don't know who stole the bunnies before our bunny slaughter class um but uh that was a three month long ordeal, which involved a restraining order and people coming to my instructor's house with bull horns and in black star with black scars over their faces. Um, yeah, the police got involved, lawyers got involved oh my goodness. It was, it was, it was, the mayhem was um and it was incredible, actually, and as it was happening the whole time, I thought. I have to do a This American Life story on this, and in fact, I ended up doing a This American Life story on it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Nice. But it was it was really the first time that I, I hadn't really actually thought that what I was doing was um, was going to be a problem for that that crowd. Yeah. I actually kind of saw what I was doing as having many common uh, goals in the end. Um, but as it turns out, bunnies bun, rabbits, bunnies, whatever you want to call them. Um, are very controversial. (laughs) They're very, I mean, they, they, um, they elicit responses that our chicken slaughter classes do not. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think if, if there are a lot of commonalities, the, the, the one or two things that are not common in our respective goals are, you know, whether or not killing an animal at all is good or not Mm. you and, and whether or not animal farming is, should be done or right. not. And those things are hard to uh yeah, we ha- I don't I haven't figured out how to bridge uh, bridge those particular right. gaps. Right.
1: So can you understand yeah. their perspective then, especially as a former vegetarian? Um Yeah,
2: I mean, I you know, I say in the book and I'm and I I I wouldn't say that when I was a vegetarian. It, I was doing it because I was a wholly informed eater of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I I became a vegetarian in my teenage years. Um, When we moved to Eugene, Oregon, where everyone wore tie-dye and ate tempeh and tofu, (laughs) um, I, like many young teen girls I know uh, nowadays and back then, uh, sort of had a need to, I guess, rebel against my parents. And that was an easy, loud way to do it. Um, And I... I think back then it wasn't actually so much, I didn't even really know how animals were raised for food in the industrial model. I think I mostly objected to the idea of animals being killed. right? Um, and, you know, over, and then I, be, I started eating meat and just sort of stopped thinking about that, which is not um, anything I'm proud of necessarily. Yeah. Well, and now through my mm-hmm. education, I've kind of had to grapple with that and decide where, where I am with that and, and what that, you know, how, how to think about that and what my own narrative is about that.
1: Mm -hmm. Is it better than, you think, just to maybe not eat meat at all? Um, We've been seeing a lot of movement in that direction with things like stem cell agriculture meat and uh, companies like WeWork saying that they're not going to serve meat because climate, um, you know, it's one of those it's one of those time. it's resource intensive foods so yeah I think, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah I, I um I think there are a couple I, I think not eating meat at all certainly decreases the amount of damage um, that that particular system of production is doing um, but it's not that creative of a solution to me um and and I'm more interested in how do we use animals in agriculture in a restorative mm-hmm. way. And I think what gets lost in the debate of whether you should eat meat at all or not is that not all meat is created equal and not all animal farming is created equal, that there are real real differences um, in how the industrial model works versus how a lot of the people that I'm working with who are doing more regenerative, restorative agriculture um, are utilizing animals in, in their systems. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost, and I think that that's unfortunate. Um, and, and I'm not convinced that if all of us stop eating meat um, and we start to have to produce um, uh,
1: clean meat or whatever. Call it. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, I mean, clean meat is a whole other yeah. thing. I don't know what to say about that. But, <laughs> okay. you know, if we have to
2: just produce a bunch of vegetables and grains and we don't have animals to help us produce that, I think that we're going to have the problems that monoculture creates mm. and the problems that, that monocrops mm. create. And we're going to have soils that are not healthy. I think we're going to have um, far worse <laughs> environmental problems um, in terms of land use. And right. um, so I just think it's just more complicated than how the debate um, allow, allows it to be.
1: Yeah. And just like when you're a teenager, there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more complicated things than you knew at the time. Um, yeah. And
2: I mean, even just culturally, it was, you know, as a teenager, I was very much saying to my father and my grandfather, who grew up almost solely eating meat that they caught or that they killed themselves in wow. the wild. I was <laughs> that's saying, impressive. you No, know, that's not acceptable. That's yeah. not, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. I also was a lazy vegetarian, which many vegetarians I know are and ate chicken and fish and eggs. And now I know those things are actually kind of the worst things I could possibly have eaten. So, you know, the subtleties were were definitely lost. Mm-hmm. on me, And I think, unfortunately, they get lost for a lot of vegetarian and vegetarians.
1: Well, um, let's talk a lot more about that and more points from this wonderful new memoir, right after a quick little commercial interlude.
0: To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
1: All right, and we're back chatting more with Camus Davis, who is the author of Killing It in Education. Hi, Camus. Did I pronounce... Am I pronouncing your name right this time? You did. Okay, good. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Um, So I love this book. Um, It's, you know, you start out really laying down the gauntlet um, with a scene of a pig being butchered in France. And I, I just love how in-your-face that is, um, mm-hmm. but but necessary to the context of, of the rest of the book, of course. Um, is this book, do you think, not for everyone, not for the faint of heart, as they say?
2: I think it's precisely for the faint of heart, actually. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I mean, I specifically talk in the book about what it means to be faint of heart and the consequences of that. Mm. Um, and I you know I think that 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 I talk a lot of in the book about the cringe that 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 sort of cultural response we've all most of us have developed to any reminder of where meat comes from and um I think that a cringe is a a way to distance ourselves from the processes such that we don't have to think about it, such that we do support a system of production that's kind of horrific um and I think for me, I, I just feel more responsible not being faint of heart and sort of really grappling with it and, and looking it all in the eye and deciding where I'm going to where I'm where I'm going to draw the line. Um, and so I, I think we risk I think we have as a culture decided that by cringing and, and sort of removing something from us and saying, well, that's over there. I don't have anything to do with it. We think it sort of absolves us responsibility. But I think that's really dangerous. And not just with meat. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's dangerous for a lot of reasons right now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my hope is that this book can help, you know, sort of coax people into moving beyond that distancing and sort of thinking about, well, what does that distance serve? Mm
1: -hmm. Who does that distance serve? Do you think that everyone should try their hand at at helping or at least witnessing an animal slaughter if they're going to eat meat?
2: I mean, I think that's a deeply personal decision, and I'm not going
1: to prescribe that for everyone. Um, It's also challenging to access sometimes, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, my work is to make it a little easier to access. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely challenging to to see that. All The the walls are tall and and thick (laughs) around Mm -hmm. those processes. Um, For me and for many of my students, I have seen the ways in which that changes how much meat I eat and my students eat, where I get it from, um, you know, has made all of us grapple, I think, in ways that are important. Um, so I, you know, I recommend it, but I know that it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, and there's a fine line between, again, that a kind of fetishism, mm-hmm. um, and, op- and spectacle, um, and really, sort of respectfully watching and learning, and you know i I always try to do the latter, mm-hmm. but there are, there are, it's easy to to remove oneself. Or it's yeah. easy to create spectacles so that you're still removed. Right. Um, and I think that's dangerous. And I also you know, I think not everyone is meant to slaughter their own pig. I mean there <laughs> yeah. there are reasons that we hire other people to do that. Um, yeah. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not doing that myself, but I for me, I'm not sure I'm okay not knowing how it's done and not knowing how it can be done humanely and how it can be done not humanely.
1: Well, a lot of people at first thought, you know, from reading your book, thought what you were doing was a little crazy, especially for <laughs> for a woman to mm-hmm. sit out and go to France and learn butchery, especially for a beautiful woman as your plain, plain seatmate said, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, uh, you really went out on a limb here and, uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it was unusual. Is it less unusual now? Do you think? I, yeah, I do.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, within my circle, I guess it is. Mm Um, (laughs) I do, you know, I have, and I write about this in the book. I have met, other women who have made these decision, this decision to leave their careers and go learn butchery and are struggling to figure out what to do with that skill once they learn it. Um, so I don't feel as alone as I did when I went to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think because I've been somewhat of a public figure and spokesperson for this movement that I find myself in, um, perhaps my image and my voice um, have become part of a cultural consciousness, so it's not Mm -hmm. as exotic. But I, you know, I write about in the book too not ever being sure if it always seems exotic. If the reason I'm being asked to, you know, write about it or get photographed with a cleaver or the reason I'm being written about is is precisely because of the exotic nature of me being a butcher and not because I have the right to talk about it or even am a good butcher. And, And that's very much part of this sort of double bind to use the phrase of a book that I wrote an essay for um, sort of the double bind of, of being a woman in an industry right. that doesn't have women and to have ambition in that industry.
1: Well, certainly I, um you may not have had too many role models to look up when it comes to butchery, but I'm curious. Um, this, this book, you know, you weave together a personal narrative, which we haven't really talked that much about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In this book, in your explorations, transformations, and education about uh, butchery, but you talk about, you know, it starts out, um, I, I want to say a little bit, eat, pray, love, because you, you just came out of a long relationship and you go off to Europe, but that—that's that's about where it ends. <laughs> but you know, I'm just curious if there's any um, inspirations when it comes to food writing or food memoirs or any memoirs really that um, that you look up to in writing.
2: Oh, so many. Um, I mean, I actually loved Eat, Pray, Love. I know it sort of people are sort of embarrassed to say they love it for some reason. I thought it was a brilliant book and well-written and so honest and sincere. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, it got made into a movie with Julia Roberts and kind of ruined it for me. But um, (laughs) I I really love that book. And it's curious to me whenever I get asked, you know, is is this the meat, prey, love (laughs) of of, uh, the book world? um, Mm. I always wonder, like, am I just being asked that because I'm a woman writing or but i i'm I'm suspicious of the question sometimes <laughs> yeah. um, and i and it's a memoir, so i sort of um i i felt I felt like I needed to give some context hmm. to the reader
0: you know totally. about
2: where I was coming from and what I was going through personally at the time, so it that's always an
1: interesting question well, for me to answer um, it, it's an engaging story nonetheless yes yeah yeah, um, but
2: yeah so I, I mean Eat, pray love, i loved um I think right around the time I was writing the proposal for my book, um, Gabrielle Hamilton's um, Blood, Bones, and Butter came out. And uh, I loved I loved reading that book because um, her relationship to writing and food, I think in some ways, is sort of similar to mine uh, in the way that she sort of seems, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I sort of have the hunch that she sort of struggled to Figure out which she wants to do occasionally, uh-huh. um, I, I, that undercurrent in the book was
1: um, was important to me. I think,
2: and I just the honesty of that book I, I really liked. Um, cool. Yeah.
1: What about What about Julie Powell? Cleaving. I, I realized that it came out um, after yeah. you started. Or I think it came out like just after you went to France, so it couldn't yeah, have been when I was
2: in France. It was. about Hmm. to come out and I had I didn't even know about it and I my old editor-in-chief at Sever had um, contacted me because I was writing some stuff online about my experiences in France and he had said oh you should write a book and uh, (laughs) I said "Ah, I don't know and he had uh, told me to talk to his agent so I talked to his agent and his agent said well you know yeah a book sounds great it would be a great book but there's this book coming out by (laughs) by uh, Powell and so I thought, well, then it's already been done, whatever. And I actually never read the book purposefully.
1: Oh, um, that's, that's a smart move. Yeah. yeah,
2: I just didn't want to have it in my head because yeah. it's such
1: a similar cool. uh, subject matter. I, I'm curious yeah. if you're going to read it now, that, now that you're done. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably will, yeah. yes. That's fun. Um, Well, it looks like that's about all the time we have for today, but um, truly exciting week for you. So congratulations, And Thank you. I hope everyone gets their hands on this book. Just came out from Penguin Press, Killing It, and uh, you are killing it. So (laughs) thanks for coming.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.
1: All right. We'll see everyone next week on Eat Your Words. And we're done. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. We're going to air this next week. We'll send an email to you and your.